Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Cheaper Than Therapy podcast that journeys into conversations that demystify, destigmatize, and desensitize what goes on both inside the therapy room and in daily life. I'm Vanessa Bennett. And I'm Danae Logan. And we are seekers, soul sisters, and holders of sacred space. Every week, we sit down for soul-provoking conversations with fellow seekers, thought leaders, change makers, and even real people during live coaching sessions as they navigate the hard work it takes to be a human. This is Cheaper Than Therapy. We wanted to jump on today because Danae posted something recently um, and we thought it was a really good conversation to have. And so we thought this would be a good topic for the pod as well as to bring it to you all live to see if there were any questions that came up. And obviously also feel free to ask us questions as you're watching. Yeah, I feel like I love that it's fun for me when I get pushback on something. That I love I it. Think it's fun. <laughs> People are like, oh no, I, am, I disagree. I'm like, oh good. I am highly more. conflict avoidant. Yeah. So I hate when people disagree with me. I just go into my shell as a turtle. <laughs> the activation points. I'm like, let's talk about it. Let's do, let's do some more exploration around. That's why you're a good therapist. I'm a good therapist. Yeah. You're a big therapist. I'm a coach, but <laughs> it's too big. I know. Okay. So tell us what the, the post was and kind of what the activation was from somebody. Yeah. So I feel like this is a conversation that comes up a lot around, you know, I feel like Dr. Shafali, um, some of you guys know her work around conscious parenting, her perspective on raising children really was a paradigm shift for me, which is basically that your children do not belong to you. Um, you are sort of your children are like these little gurus that come into your life to teach you lessons that you are meant to learn in this lifetime. But it's a real paradigm shift from the way that most of us were raised, which is that we sort of are our parents' um, belongings that like, you know, there's a sense of ownership over your kids. When your kids are doing something, it makes you feel embarrassed. Or if your kids aren't doing well, it's somehow a reflection of you as a parent. And I was saying, you know, um, it's like that Khalil Gibran 
book, The Prophet, mm -hmm. there's um, a poem in there where he talks about your children are not your children, right? And so whenever I'm talking about soul contracts, I really, I bring up that poem and I talk about how I believe that we come through our parents into this life, but we do not belong to our parents. And um, I think a lot of times what I see happening for parents is that we get really tripped up in this sense of ownership. Mm -hmm. So if something's going wrong with my kid or if I, my kid is struggling with something, I feel like I'm failing. I feel like I'm not a good parent. And, you know, I think one, that's, that's a lot of pressure on your kids. And, kids yeah. <laughs> and yeah. And I think that like our children are these individual little beings that are having their own life journey, their own experience. And there's something, I don't know, um, certainly a little narcissistic about sort of this sense of ownership that we have a lot of times over our children, but also I think we can really interfere with who our children are meant to become in this lifetime by projecting some of those fears, those worries, those paradigms onto them. Yeah. So here's, so I agree with that. And, and also I, I feel like here's where I can see some of the, um, maybe the pushback or the activation coming around. Right. So totally hear what you're saying around it being a little bit narcissistic to think that we own our children. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and that somehow they are a reflection of us. I think there's two things that are coming up for me. So one is, and we've talked about this, you know, generationally, right. The generation prior to us, I would say like probably boomers really. And, and before that, actually, I would say all the way up through boomers, um, the indication that you were a good parent was none other, nothing other than your kids are obedient. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you had obedient children, you were considered a good parent. Yeah. That's it. Right. Um, and so I think that that has actually trickled down. I don't think it stopped after the boomer generation. I think we still see it showing up now. I think it's still like a worry of ours. So there's that. And also, I think that in in almost like, I don't know, people's like good intentions, I think is not knowing where the line is between I am here to guide my child and help my child as best as I can. Um, and then where is that line where I say, you know, here's my guidance, here's my help. Now the rest of it's on you. I think people struggle with that. And I do think there's good intention behind that struggle and just not knowing like, okay, but when do I back off? Like, what is the point that I say, this is your life, this is your journey and it's not for me to control. Yeah. I mean, two things come up. First, I think it's really important to unpack and really scrutinize what it means for a child to be obedient. Because as we know, so much of what we end up, um, you know, doing a lot of healing work around is what it meant for us to be obedient, which is a lot of times stuffing difficult emotions, stuffing the the things that were showing up for us as children that I would argue are actually really healthy manifestations of our humanity that felt overwhelming to our parents because they yeah. had been conditioned to suppress those things within themselves, right? So I think oftentimes what is an obedient child is a child who is um, seen and not heard. Exactly. Like those old school ideas of like, you know, what, what a child should be to be a quote, good child. Right. And I would argue like, I don't know, sometimes I think like when my child is pushing back or like really resisting something that I'm saying, um, I'm like, well done, like well done in your sense of individuation, well done in your sense of self mm -hmm. that I don't want to take away from him. I was just having this conversation actually, um, when we all went to New York over the holiday, um, my little one, Logan was like, Ooh, she was struggling. Mm -hmm. I don't know what was going on. I think it was, you know, travel, being tired, whatever it was. Um, she had like three days where it was just like hell. <laughs> it was like, I don't know where my child went. She was like acting totally different. Um, and I remember going over to a girlfriend's house. We were all getting together. And I said, 
all of these qualities in her that I want her to continue to have, especially as a woman, as she becomes an adult, right? Like Mm -hmm. she's determined, she's outspoken, like she knows what she wants. Like she, you know, she's super firm in her boundaries, all these things. Like right now in this moment, like (laughs) my girlfriend laughed, I was like saying this and she's like, and I need you to comply right now in this (laughs) moment. I'm like, I just need you to get your fucking shoes on. Right. Like, how do you balance? I mean, that's a good question because even I struggle with that. Like, what is the balance between like, and right now we need to get out the fucking door. You need to put your shoes on. And I understand that like you're asserting yourself and I respect that and put your shoes on. I mean, and that that's the point, right? <laughs> because first of all, we all struggle with that. Yeah. How can and not? yeah. And I think that so often what I find um, is that my work becomes my own self-regulation. My work becomes like paying attention to what it is activating in me when I'm like, okay, we're going to be late for school. I need your shoes on now. Yeah. Um, and can I check that? Yeah. We might be 10 minutes late for school. The sky is not falling, but I find that more often than not, the bigger I am in my, like, you don't need yeah. to make this happen. It almost prolongs the process. Whereas if I'm like, all right. Like your activation activates him, which activates you, which activates him. It's energy, right? Like he's responding to my energy of I'm going to control you and everything in him because that's like, like the human response, even from really little, when someone is attempting to control us, our natural response is just to resist, right? So if I'm like, all right, bud, well, you let me know when you're ready to go. I'm going to- Even you say that, I'm like- bullshit. (laughs) And I mean, and you know how many people are like, these and privileged entitled children. And I'm like, I, you know what it is? It's this thing of like adult supremacy. Hmm. I don't believe that I am superior to my child. And this is like, so many people really, really struggle with this, but I don't believe because I'm older than him, I am somehow superior as a person or that like he has to comply with my will. Now, listen, when it comes to safety, if there's something right. that is like going to make him unsafe, of course, then you have to listen to me. Right. But like putting your shoes on in a timely manner, because I need you to do this now, or we're going to be late according to the time. Like, yeah, sometimes we're going to be late, but I find the more that I'm like forcing, the more that there's resistance. It's just, and the minute I'm sort of like, okay, I'm going to just chill and tend to myself with all of the stuff that is coming up as I'm watching the clock tick. Um, he's just a lot quicker to get there. Hmm. I'm still struggling with this because I'm, I'm putting myself in the shoes of somebody who says, okay, well, that's cool. I can try that with my kid, but, um, they'll just never go to school. Like they'll literally never go to school. Like they'll never get out of the house. They'll never want to go to school. Um, so are you telling me, right? Like as a parent, like we were saying, brushing your teeth as an example, right? Mm-hmm. I think this is a good example because as far as I know, everybody struggles with getting their kids to brush their teeth. Why does it always come back to brushing Because it's like a universal struggle. <laughs> kids hate brushing their teeth, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know a single kid, what age, whatever, like until you hit late teens that you genuinely are like, oh, it actually feels nice to have a fresh mouth. Like kids would go forever without brushing, right? Yeah. So when we were talking about this before we jumped on, it's like, okay, there's a certain age at which like you kind of, and I'm not saying I necessarily hold her down. I mean, maybe I did when she was like a little bit younger, but like, there's a certain age by which you have to teach your kid. Like, this is actually really important for these reasons, right? Like we do this for our body. We do this to take care of ourselves. Like actually having bad teeth can cause all kinds of other health problems that like will show up later in life. Like there are legitimate reasons for this, but they don't understand when they're two, three, four years old. Right. And then you hit a certain age, like you were saying, a client has like a 13 year old. And that feels different because then at 13, you're like, listen, I've done my part. I taught you what I can teach you. You know, you've been to the dentist now how many times every year, you know how important this is. If you choose not to take care of your teeth, like then that's on you. 
that's I think where the struggle is. Maybe that's where that line is. Yeah, I mean, your teeth belong to you, right? And then this is where something Brene Brown talks about, I have found super helpful, which is attempting to drop into empathy for what is happening to that child in this moment of like, I have like, I, you know, I've, I've told you, my son will even like use the actual words, you have no choice, you have no choice. And it frustrates him. To himself. Like, he'll say it to me, like, yeah, in yeah. anger, like, you have no choice, mommy, I'm going to my room. Like, you know, he's okay. like mad that like, an adult is again, sort of like in this point of supremacy over him or forcing him into something that he doesn't want to do or be. Um, and so what Brene Brown suggests is giving them a choice, right? So well, I mean, a lot of people give, that's like a lot of big parenting advice right now, right? It's all about like giving them choices. So they feel like they have power. So they have some sort of like agency. autonomy agency over their life experience, yeah. which might sound like, all right, but if you don't brush your teeth then all of the popcorn is going to get stuck in your teeth. So we can either brush our teeth and we can have popcorn movie nights, which is like my kid's thing, or we cannot brush our teeth, but then we're not going to be able to have popcorn anymore because when we don't brush our teeth and we have popcorn, that's going to hurt over time. Like really like, oh, so what do you want to do? Do you want to brush your teeth and keep having popcorn or not brush your teeth and not have popcorn anymore? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she responds well to choices sometimes. <laughs> I mean, sometimes the choice is you're either going to do this or I'm going to hold you down and you're going to do it. And then she chooses, let me just sit here and do it. <laughs> well, and I mean, she's a little younger too. <laughs> I feel like it's a little hard to rationalize when they're still like, you know, she doesn't understand the concept. Yeah. Again, it's like, why am I doing this? Right. So I do want to bring this back to, because it's not just parenting mm -hmm. that we see this show up let's be real we're so i've got this all you know we've got all <laughs> these lives and we're recording all these things specifically on tiktok where i talk mostly about codependency yes. um you know i think this is the conversation you and i have a lot we work with a lot of our clients on we bring this into all of our retreat work that we do um it's this idea of codependency versus interdependence right mm -hmm. and how that shows up across the board in all of our relationships right and i know for me as somebody who struggles with codependency um the desire to control everything mm -hmm. my people my environment right stems from safety it stems from a loss of control a lack of control which by the way going back to what you were just saying about kids what better way than to train our children to be codependent and a need to control to feel safe than by taking away their control from day one mm -hmm. you're literally ingraining it in them as they get older right like my autonomy has been taken away. And so now I don't feel safe. I don't have agency over myself. So now what else can I go out and control over here? Right. Oof. I mean, shit, it shows up in everything. And, and I think what you just said is so powerful because I do feel like that is a way that I watch codependency show up for parents yeah. so often is this like other things in my life feel out of control. I'm going to control my kid. Like, it's like yeah. you, you're something that I can self-regulate through. Right. Ooh. Like, yeah. I mean, and it's, and I feel like you feel it in yeah. your body as we talk about it, as it comes up, that's what we're doing, you know? And it's so, oof. so explain that a little bit more. So this idea of self-regulating through your child. Well, I believe that's what our control, what our codependency is in general, right? It's like, as you always say, right? I'm okay. If you're okay, I'm good. If we're good. Right. Yeah. So I am self-regulating whatever is happening in my internal world, um, externally. Yeah. Right. So I feel like, you know, I think a lot of times the way it'll show up is I have a conflict with my spouse. Um, my spouse will not listen to me. I feel frustrated. I feel flooded. I feel overwhelmed. And why is my kid brushing my their teeth? Right. Yeah. And that is someone that I can sort of get control of. 
regulate what is happening for me internally through them. Mm-hmm. And they have to comply because I'm the boss. I'm in charge. I'm the grown up. So I don't feel like I have any control in other areas of my life. So rather than really sitting with that, digesting that, processing that, working through that on my own, figuring out, you know, how to get around that, how to work through that, how to get control of my areas of my life. I just, I, I just kind of put all of that over here. And instead of doing that, I just go to my kid and I say, I'm going to put all of that energy into controlling you. Yeah. I mean, there was something that you said that I'm trying to circle back to. Like we were talking about the thing of like the two reasons that's difficult for parents to hear. Yeah. Um, and I think it is because a lot of times there's, oh, I remember you were talking about how it's like, I'm supposed to guide this child. Yeah. I'm supposed to make them a good person. Well, I didn't say make them a good person. Well, and I think, but I think that's I'm what sort of say. speaking yeah, in, for like the average person. I'm jumping that. into that, yeah, yeah. that, you know, what my job is as a parent. Um, I think our work is less to make a child anything. Um, I think children are sort of innately who they are going to be, yeah. who they are meant to be. And this is the, the big paradigm shift from what we were raised in. Um, I think that it's not our responsibility to sort of guide our children. It's our responsibility to get to know our children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that they are who they came here to be. This is like the soul contract work, right? Like I came here with a mission. I believe my child came here with a mission. My job as a parent is to get to know him, to understand that mission to the best of my ability so I can love and support him through that, but not for me to decide who he's meant to be in this lifetime. And again, yes, I am here charged with keeping him safe, food, clothing, and shelter, but he is not mine to like mold into who I think he needs to be as a human being. That's not my job. That is control and that is codependency. Hmm. So I'm struggling then with this idea of at least it, um, teaching is the word that keeps coming up for me, but I almost feel like teaching is still da- like a like a pointing down, mm-hmm. I guess, word. But I don't know if it's guiding. I'm not really sure what the best word is. But then so the question comes up for me around like, what about this idea of teaching your child? Like um, I, even the word manners to me does feel like I'm instructing them to fit within society. And I get that. But like, um, I guess, how do I say this? So are you, are you saying that you believe, let's just say we didn't teach our children anything about like being kind or taking turns or, um, you know, not being rude in how they speak to somebody. Do you believe that they just innately know that stuff and it will just come out on their own if I never model that or teach that to them at all? Listen, you just said an important word. You said model. I believe my child says thank you because he hears me say thank you to him or thank you to his father. Like, there are certain things that he is watching and he's sort of emulating what I'm doing. Do I, and this is again, a place where people, I get some pushback. Say thank you. You say need to please. say thank you or yeah. you need yeah. to like, I, hear that a lot too. I don't love that. Like yeah. if that's not the truth of how he feels, I don't want him to say. Although I will say when she looks at me and goes, you know, juice and I'll go, I'm sorry, what? And she'll go, please. I'm like, yeah, okay. That because I do. You need to be an autonomous person. Yeah. Like I don't want anybody making demands at me. I don't work for you. I think you can say those yeah, things yeah, yeah. to a child as another human being. Mm-hmm. But there's something about, I'll never forget, like when my, when my little boy first went to school, he would, they would say like, he's like the greeter when there's a new kid who's crying, who's super upset. He goes over and he's like the welcome committee. And he like has like such deep empathy for that child. And he's like, it's fun. Here's what we do. And he shows them around. I didn't teach him that. Yeah. That's who he is. Yeah. Right. Like, I think that so much of our work is My just, little just extra I mean, I know. I'm like, <laughs> I did not teach him that, you know, I'd be like, well, don't work it out. <laughs> um, 
But I think that so we're just not giving them enough credit a lot of times when we're like, I need to teach them to be a good person. Well, who told you they're not a good person? Like what? And I think that if we see them as good people and we're just sort of like really highlighting all of the ways that we see them as good people and listen, do I do these things perfectly? Of course not. And there are some things that I just am like, this is innately who he is. Most of my work is to stay out of the way. I can see how that would show up in like romantic relationships too, because when I think about as being a therapist, right, when, when a couple comes in, so say somebody comes in for couples therapy, when a couple comes in and there's contempt, mm. right, or there's like blatant disrespect, like I don't love who this person is as a person anymore, mm. right? Um, I'll tell you like behind the curtain and it's not really behind the curtain because the Gottmans have talked about this a lot, but they're usually as a therapist in my gut, I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't see a lot of hope for this relationship. Like if that contempt is already so boiled in where I truly don't believe my partner's a good person anymore. Right. And I say anymore, hopefully you did at one point, otherwise you wouldn't be with them. But if you've gotten to the place where you have that much feeling of like this person's, I don't respect them as a person. Um, I, I sometimes as a therapist, I see very little hope to come back from that. You know, it's hard to rebuild that respect for somebody when you like squashed it for so long. And I think that that can be similar for a kid. It's like, how come you don't believe that your child is innately a good child or that you respect them, right? Because a lot of it's respect, especially with parents. It's like that you don't respect them having their own voice, having mm-hmm. their own opinions, pushing back on you and having their own boundaries. Um, it's like, yeah, it's respect. Yeah. I mean, I'm circling back to what you were saying about couples and, you know, this is where I love couples work, but I think I a little bit get what's underneath that lack of respect. Sure. A lot of times I think that it has to do with something with my relationship with myself, right? Mm-hmm. You guys, well, it always comes back to relationship itself, right? At the yeah. end of the day. Yeah. And I, I feel like I always use this Meryl Street quote, but I'm coming back to it again, which is, you know, she was talking about the longevity of her marriage. And someone was asking how they've made it last all these years. And she was saying, whenever I have been, um, you know, unhappy in my marriage or dissatisfied with my husband or felt like I needed something more, it was always when I was feeling those things about myself. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think a lot of times when we're holding contempt for our partner, there's something that I'm not like, you know, it's like distraction. Like there's something about myself that I don't want to focus on. There's something about like my mission and how I'm showing up in the world that I'm not feeling proud of that it's like, how do I bring the focus back to me? Because when I'm focusing all of that energy externally, normally it's because there's some things about me I don't want to look at or address. And, you know, we talk about all the time with couples therapy, like the couples that are like, this person is doing this. And it's like, okay, until you're willing to like bring the focus and look at yourself, like this is a waste of time for everybody, right? Um, And so I don't know, like, I do think there can be hope, but it's a lot of times like, I mean, obviously, I, I just think it depends on like how many years of <clears throat> resentments and contempt have you built up? Because even if you do the work on yourself, what I have experienced is like if you, and this is why when I teach about codependency, I talk about resentment being such an important marker, right? It's like, it's a flag that we have to pay attention to the absolute second it, it comes up because if we don't, right, then it gets, it gets kind of added to the pile and it becomes like this bank account that we're just like adding to, adding to, adding to. And if it gets to the point where you're talking years on the road, it's not that it's impossible, but it's, it's a heavy bank account to train. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I, I understand and I feel, you know, we're talking about like over-functioner, under-functioner dynamics. And I think that I, I often relate more to that under-functioner dynamic. And so, you know, um, 
the attempt to change the person or the feeling of contempt is not so much like what in my body I resonate with. And I think that like on both sides, it's, it's still like, you know, how am I holding myself? What am I feeling about me? And, and that can be a pretty, and to your point, I think if, if that person is just like really resistant Mm -hmm. to looking inward, then yeah. I mean, I think move on to the next person and see how much you're able to avoid those same things coming up. Cause you know, wherever we go, we take ourselves with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know the the contempt thing is, is really interesting because as the over-functioner, obviously, mm-hmm. um, you know, so much of my work, I'm thinking about my last relationship and, um, or I guess two relationships ago, and I had so much contempt and, you know, I was in a relationship with somebody who had, you know, a substance issue and I was starting to do my own work and I was going to therapy and I was in Al-Anon and I was doing my codependency journey and recovery journey. Mm -hmm. And I was really working on that contempt. Um, and I was working on turning it around back to myself. And yet there was so much contempt and so much, um, actually not even contempt. I actually believe now that I'm saying that out loud through the process of working on myself, what happened was the contempt went away. I actually no longer had contempt in the way that I did in the beginning. I still had a lot of resentment, but resentment and contempt made me feel slightly different. Um, I had a lot of resentment in that as I was doing my work and I was being more clear about my expectations, my needs, my boundaries, and he was not doing any of his own work. So he was still meeting me in the same place he had always been meeting me. And I was doing all this work and I was trying, I felt like I was trying so hard to better myself in a relationship. And I was still kind of being met with this like wall. Mm. Um, so the resentments were still there, but what happened was I no longer had contempt. It was more of like, a, oh, I don't hold contempt for you because I see that you have, you don't have the capacity for this. Like you can't meet me there because of where you're at. I don't find that can, um, Contemptual, contemptuous, that's the word I'm thinking of anymore. I just see it for what it is. And I release both of us from that contempt. Mm-hmm. And now I say, um, I'm going to stop hitting my head into this brick wall. And I'm going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to leave. Like, this is the end of the relationship. Yeah. And I mean, I, I do think that that is sometimes where relationships need to and do expire. Yeah. When it's like, we can't meet in that space. I do feel curious to hear more about the wall as you say it. Um, like, what does that look like? How do you know that your, your partner is meeting you in a wall? Do you know what I mean? Well, they were still fully in the throes of a substance addiction and Which, absolutely incapable of saying that there was a substance addiction. Well, so then there's no reciprocity because <laughs> there's you're, no you're reciprocity. not actually in a relationship with you. You're in a relationship yeah. with a substance, which is a very different conversation, right? Yeah. And I think that happens so often. I think that at least in my experience, like I have a lot of people who come to me and we always say as therapists, like the people clients find you that like need to find you, right? I have a lot of people who will come to me who are either um, in a relationship with somebody with a substance, have previously gotten out of a relationship with somebody with a substance, right? So that tends to be my world, hence my kind of obsession with codependency and diving into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things obviously we talk about is that like they, they can't meet you, they can't do this work with you until they're actually working on that substance, right? Because just like you're working on your addiction, which is your behavioral addiction, which is your codependency, right. they should also be working on their addiction, which in this case happens to show up as a substance addiction, right? Um, and I think in my example anyway, there was zero acknowledgement or willingness to kind of own that part. Um, and it was still a lot of finger pointing. And so where do you go from there? You know? Well, I feel like, you know, your previous relationship to me ends up being a really great example of what I tell clients all the time, which is like, do your work. 
focus on you, that person will either rise to meet you where you're expanding or who you are becoming or the relationship will fall away as it needs to. But you don't have to know. You don't have to figure out and like get in there and make it happen and make them comply. Well, and even that, when you do that face and you're like, oh, I'm going to get in there like that to me, I can, I feel contempt of that. That like getting in there and wanting you to be the way I want you to be and like controlling, like there's an energy behind that that feels contemptuous. I don't know. Um, And maybe that is the over-functioning controlling aspect of myself, but it's like, if I'm getting in there, I'm trying to control and you're not complying, I'm going to feel contempt for that. Yeah. I knew that to myself. And, and that's, Going back to the kid thing. that's a, such a powerful point, right? Because anytime I need you to be anything other uh-huh. than who you are in this moment, like that's about me, right? Yeah, like our relationships. And again, this is another really large paradigm shift, but to me, this is the interdependence yeah. piece is my job is not actually for me to make you anything other than you are. You get to be your own autonomous human being. Yeah. My job is to love you exactly as you are period end of sentence by the way loving you we're not talking about kids we're talking about romantic relationships loving you exactly as you are doesn't mean that i'm staying yeah loving you does not have anything to do with my love for me like i love myself yeah. first period that's what i think we have to be very clear about it's like oh. this idea does not mean i just stay and accept bad behavior right right and that's an important distinction but that's when we always talk about like is my love coming from a space of fear or genuine love right like if i'm people pleasing or if i'm in a codependent dynamic or I'm like allowing you to I don't know be disrespectful of me and whatever then fear is what is driving that quote love that's actually not really love that's not saying the thing that's not being authentic in this relationship mm-hmm. um I don't need you to change you get to be who you're going to be I'm not a victim of who you are I just get to decide if I want to stay and participate in this dynamic with the way that you are showing up. Girl, I talk about this all the time and people have such a hard time. We're a very codependent culture. Yes, we are. I get so much pushback on this. And, you know, and I have said to to numerous people, like, especially on TikTok, which I find um, it's really interesting because with the Instagram followers, right? Like people come to you specifically, like they follow you through somebody they know, or they, like they resonate with your content. And Mm so- what I find in TikTok is because we're getting served up so many random people, there's so many people that get served up my content that are like, what is this bullshit? How dare you tell me that I'm the victim, that I'm keeping myself in a victim mentality because this person's you know, treating me like shit. And I'm like, well, are you accepting it? Are you tolerating it? He thinks thou dost protest too much. Like, are you not setting boundaries? Ah. Like what, you know, so then, yeah, you are keeping yourself in that place. And holy shit, the amount of people who lose their minds on TikTok about like self-development stuff that comes across their page is just like, it's such an indication of how hard it is for us as a culture, us as a people to look inward, to own our hundred percent, to turn around and say like, what can I own in this? Um, and I get it. I'm not saying it's easy. I mean, I have a hard time doing it every day and like, hello, that's the work. I mean, it's, you know, to me, it's moving from problem to solution. I don't love swimming in problems. It's not my favorite thing. I do think a lot of people love to swim in the problems well, of life. Di- it's an addiction of it in itself, right? It is. Yeah. And I'm like, if I either like, you know, it's that Maya Angelou quote, if you don't like something, change it. If you can't change it, change your attitude about it. And I think like for the rest of my life, forever and ever, amen, the only person I get to be in control of is me. It's me. Mm-hmm. And so if I am in the state of being victimized and you're right, like personal responsibility is not a popular concept in our culture we want to point the finger at why everybody's a narcissist or a love bomber or a gaslighter all the things right it's like okay 
You're right. Sweet. Okay, oh. let's just say that. Let's just say, for example, that they are gaslighting <laughs> I the shit out of you. Sure. Do you now continue what? to show up? Yeah. Now, what are you going to do about it? Right. That person is who they are. You sitting in the space space of I am being victimized by this person isn't actually hurting that person. Unpopular opinion. It's that's about you and your life. So if they are who they are, how do you allow them to be who they are and decide I'm a victim of nothing? Yeah. I get to have agency over my own life. Period. Yeah. And there, I mean, obviously, look, whenever we're having these conversations, there's always going to be the extreme. And this is another thing where people get like totally like they lose their shit about it. It's like, how dare you say that if this person's in an abusive relationship and it's about their safety? And like, yes, there's always going to be that example where it's like, no, you can't just like pack your bags and walk out the door. If you're in an abusive situation, you've got kids, you have no autonomy over your finances. Like, and and there's still ways that then let's get you some support. Yeah. Then, let's build from the ground up, right? Like let's figure out how we can make a safety plan. Um, you know, figure out that financial stuff. Like what do we need to do to get in there? And this I say we because in a lot of those cases, you do need somebody like a therapist or somebody external to help you in that, right? So I want to put words to that because I'm not saying we're not saying that like everybody, it's like get in there and change it. It's like sometimes it's not that easy, obviously. Um, and Nobody's we're not saying any of this is yeah. easy. Personal responsibility is, is actually the least easy thing. <laughs> work. And I still stand by what I said, which is bringing the focus back in. Right. Yeah, if I am attracted to this person, or if I am in a dynamic that feels impossible for me to shift, I have to bring the focus back to me. And like you said, reaching out for help, seeing how I can get support, seeing what I can do to reclaim some sort of agency over my life. I don't care. I think that is still like, what we have the ability to do. We're not like, yeah, sometimes we don't have the ability to change people. Yeah. Period. I don't care what they're doing. People change because they want to always not because someone else has demanded or nagged them into submission. It's, it's just not how we work. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and again, here we are back to kids. It's the same thing with kids. Like, you know, and, and we had that, we had this comment, um, or you made this comment earlier where you were saying, I don't remember. I want to give the exact specifics. I don't want to give away this, this certain person, but um, it felt like to their kid, very fear-based. Right. Mm. And, and I, I guess probably because how I was raised, I was very quick to be like, Oh, well, I do it because I'm scared. Right. Like mm. I do it because I'm afraid of you, the parent, um, what the response is going to be, what the reaction, what the punishment is going to be. Um, and I follow a lot of uh, parenting people on like TikTok and Instagram or whatever. And so many times when they're giving this exact same feedback, which is like, uh, parenting through fear, right. Mm-hmm. Versus parenting through autonomy and choice and things like this. And so many people are like, Oh yeah, you're raising a bunch of snowflakes. You're raising a bunch of this. You're, you know, so many times <laughs> the term well, snowflake cracks me up, but, um, it's like, yeah. And I've been on the receiving end of that kind of parenting and you're not doing it because you believe it's the right thing to do. You're doing it because you're worried or you're fearful and guess what happens? The second that person becomes an adult, which they will at some point, your two-year-old's not going to be two forever they're going to get to decide if they want to do that thing because you're not there to hover over them and instill fear anymore. And they will lie to you. Oh God. They will lie to you the absolute second they're able to lie, which is like four or five years old, by the way. That's when we learned to lie. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, it's like, how do I tend to the fear that is coming up for me? Um, A lot of times when I am in that space of, I need my child to be compliant. I need my child to be a certain thing in society for me, it is based on what I'm afraid of. You know, um, a lot of times I hear parents speak to like, I'm afraid that if they're not doing well, or if they're acting out, that means something about me as a parent, where that means that I'm failing. Right. Yeah. Um, and I definitely experienced that feeling. Yeah. I, don't have to. I do. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I, I think maybe because like something about Dr. Shafali's work yeah. like really resonated with me before I had a child. And it's so much of the lens with which I, well, and this is the other thing. I think all of us sort of parent in response to the way that we were parented. And mm-hmm. I felt very much like I was an extension of someone else and was very rebellious against that for so much of my life that I think I am so like, he's not mine. He gets to be his own person. It's like, whatever I want to do is fine. He's not going to be on the last while you're like, he's not mine. Like, I don't know. Look at that kid. It's Whose kid is that? Whose kid is that? Tells me. Because <laughs> he's not my kid. I don't know. Who raised him? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, these are, these are these concepts. We always come back to this idea that like, it's always easier to hear it than it is to actually do it. Right. And we're never going to do it right. I mean, Logan is still in a, in a phase where she's getting a little better now, but she's still in that phase where she's, she's very like physically aggressive. Like Mm. she pushes and she's very vocal. It's mine. And like, it's so fascinating. Oh my God. It's so (laughs) fascinating to watch because I'm like, you're like the smallest one. And yet you are the loudest and the most physically aggressive. That's why I love it because she's so little. Oh my God. And it's like, it is hard for me because, you know, we'll go to like her, she has like little, this little gym class we go to or like the playground. And I've seen her like straight up smack a kid in the face. It's not funny. And it's not funny because it's like, I don't want that to be my child. First of all, yes, I do feel that immediate shame where it's like, oh my God, I look around, like, is everybody looking at me? Like I have this horrible kid that doesn't have, you know, any, I don't know, respect or boundaries or whatever the words are that are coming up. So I do immediately feel that shame. And then I have to like, in the moment, well, usually not in the moment. In the moment I did actually, the one time she did do this, I did grab her hand. Cause I was like, <gasps> like I couldn't believe she smacked this kid right in the face and did say no, very like aggressively. And then I remembered, it was like a split second. Holy shit, that was my reaction. And then I remembered and I was able to like quickly self-soothe enough to let go of her hand, divert my attention to that little kid, which is what I've like read numerous times. It's like, nope, you actually ignore them. Mm -hmm. And you go to that child and you show that child empathy, right? Like, are you okay? Did that hurt, right? Like, and, and then she gets to see that, which goes back to modeling. She actually gets to see me being concerned about this little person that she might have potentially hurt. Anyway, I just like recaptured all of this horrible experience of her smacking the skin on the playground. It was really triggering for me. Well, and this is a good point because I think so often you forget that these are developmental stages, right? right? Very and I normal. Think that's really important for us as parents to tune into yeah. as well, because there's like I remember buying the book of like why we don't hit, yeah, and they grow out of it. They like, do. <laughs> it doesn't hit anybody yeah. anymore. But there was a stage where it's like it's I am like figuring out how my to, body too, right? My space in the world, like yeah, that stuff. and regulate through my frustration, yeah. and like this is like and and you they start to understand. But I think that that is. Um, smart advice to like bring it to empathy for the other child but yeah but that it doesn't mean she's going to be like a violent little girl it means that developmentally this is what they do at this stage right oh god it's so hard though I mean I I, you know it's hard because you do want to control you do want to say in that moment like we don't do that we don't hit you know um and that's not I don't know that's not helpful (laughs) well and they don't stop they don't stop. Like I, I, I think when you say helpful, when I say helpful, that I think that's what it is. They don't stop that experience. Unless, unless I scare the shit out of her so badly. <laughs> Not that I would, but I'm saying oh, like, God, would you do that exactly? well, I've seen parents, right. It's like where I've actually seen this happen. You know, I've, I've engaged with parents where their parent does do like a pushing or hitting 
And I, as a grown woman, get uncomfortable with how aggressive that parent shows up to their kid um, and how they parent that kid in such an aggressive way that I actually, in my body, feel unsafe. Yeah. Yeah, okay, your kid probably will stop hitting, but only because they are absolutely terrified of you. And that they is haven't what, learned why they shouldn't hit. They've just learned, oh, oh my God, I'm terrified of my parent. That's and it. my emotions are too big and I need to start like shrinking and suppressing and myself. And that is where I think like yeah. the long lasting damaging impact comes in is when I am so out of control. I am so out of the space of self-regulation that I let my fear get so big that it, it terrifies that child and that child will do anything to defend against having that experience again. To never have to feel that. Yeah, that's important. And you're right. I have seen that like with oh. parents and been like, oh, oh yeah. what do we do? That was, yeah. Oh, that's oh, so hard. It's hard. Oh, it's yeah. hard. I like feel it in my body as I'm talking about it. Like yeah. experiencing that and being like, mm -hmm. I like just want to hug their kid. Like my only thing in that moment is I actually want to like take that kid out of their arms and like give them a hug because it just feels so visceral to experience that. Yeah, and that's the difference between guilt and shame, right? Yeah. Like what you're teaching Logan in the moment that you go and empathize with the other child is to feel maybe a little guilty because she smacked the child upside the head and- Oh no, in the face. <laughs> so, Square in between the eyes. <laughs> so I would argue that guilt is maybe an appropriate emotion yeah. for her to feel, but you know, the differentiation between guilt and shame, for those of you who don't know, is guilt is, um, I did something bad, shame is, I, I am bad, right? And so what we don't want our children to internalize is the sense of, you know, when the parent's emotion explosion is so big, it's like, oh, what I did must have been awful. I must be I bad. I must be bad. Because they reacted like this. Yeah. had such a large reaction, right? So it becomes... I mean, that's actually like a brilliant way to like, yeah, that's that you just hurt someone. This child is hurting. We mm -hmm. don't want that. You should feel some kind of way about that, but oh, you're Brene, not bad. Brene Brown says though, which I think is really interesting because obviously we know that she's done, you know, almost her whole career has been around shame. Um, she actually talks about how there is a certain amount of developmentally appropriate shame, right? Like she talks about how there is a certain amount of shame that's actually important for like, um, development within a society. Like essentially it's like how we learn how to function in a society is through the shame. But the difference is that it shouldn't come from those who are supposed to love you unconditionally. Yeah. And like, here's, it's going to come from peers sometimes. Yeah. It's going to come from, you know, unfortunately, like maybe a coach or a teacher or whatever, like basically not your people, your family, your closest people. Um, and that's when the shame can be so much more like toxic and detrimental is when it comes from those people. Yeah. And I think that you're right. Like so, so many of these things are things that are unavoidable. And, you know, this is where I don't follow parenting experts because I do feel like there can be just so much like, of this, like, um, you know, we feel like crippled as parents. Like, what am I supposed to do? What's the script? I don't want to get it wrong. wrong. Like, yeah. And I hear that so much from parents, and I'm like, I don't know. You're gonna screw up your kid. Get over it and just do. The I best say it all the time. John gets so mad at me when I tell parents this. I'm always like, you're gonna fuck up your kid. Can it's we just, like, real. Can we just get that out of the way now? <laughs> it's called human beings yeah. raise human beings. But I will say, Catherine Winter Celery, little shout out. She is like my favorite parenting expert. She is someone I follow because she talks about this thing of like teaching your or treating your child like you would another human being and like. To me, that's like the best I can do. I'm not going to do it perfectly. He's not going to be um, unscathed as he moves through this world, but can I treat him with 
the amount of respect that I would want. And when I fall short, say, yep, mom missed the part. Sorry about that, but you know, um, I think that's really the best we can do. I think that brings up a lot of shame in people too. Like having, again, coming back to like self-acceptance, what's my hundred percent in this? Like being able to actually say, I, I shouldn't have spoken to you like that. Yeah. Like I, that wasn't okay. You know, like I got frustrated because of whatever reason. And like, I should not have spoken to you like that. And I'm sorry. Like I own that. And you know, even at two, I'm trying to do that with Logan. And I will say it's not easy. It, for me, it's not easy, but I am the one on the other side where like, I do have a lot of shame. And that is a lot of my codependent tendencies, like accepting what I've done. That's quote unquote bad. And being able to separate, I have done this thing that's bad. Separate that from I am bad yeah. is something that I really struggle with. And so even with my kid, even with my partner, I struggle with that, yeah. you know? And I, I, I say that out loud because I want to acknowledge like everybody's saying like, own it and apologize to your kid and, and whatever. And it's, it's, it's hard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I think it's important that you, you said that and you, um, you made that distinction because I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it does require a lot of ego strength to do exactly what you're saying, which is understanding like no part of me is ever minimized by being human and allowing for my humanity. And most of us weren't raised to believe that. Most of us were raised to like believe that like you're just supposed to avoid making mistakes at all costs. And and some of this is like our natural response to defend ourselves right. and like, you know, protect ourselves when we feel like we've fallen short. Um, I love to apologize sometimes too much. <laughs> Stop saying I'm sorry. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have a hard time saying I'm sorry ever about anything ever. It's really, it's like not a good, it's not, it's not cute. It's not a good look. <laughs> I mean, I've gotten, I feel like you apologize. I've gotten better. I mean, as I've done this work, I've gotten better, but I might, it's not my natural inclination. Mm. Like my natural inclination is like, well, fuck you to the other person. <laughs> I'm not going to say I'm sorry. Clearly this is about you and not me, right? Mm. Um, and it's taken a lot of, um, well, but I mean, that's also kind of how I was raised, you know? And when, when we're raised by, by parents who also have a hard time taking ownership because they deal with their own shame and their own, you know, then we then learn that too, right? Modeling. So it's definitely been something I've, I've worked hard at. Um, yeah. and <laughs> Doyle talks about how... <laughs> like before it even comes out of her mouth he'll be like I know mom you're sorry I'm fine you're doing a great job parenting me I'm like that's so gonna be me I know and he's like a preteen right so I can only imagine the eye roll like that comes oh my with gosh. having a parent like but that. again it's like response to how because I never heard and no, children never. have this incredible sense of justice right and there were times I was like you owe me apology damn it times there was many 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 times but I, I think they say that like, <clears throat> we are so resilient. Our children are so resilient. Um, but there is something so healing even years later. And I think this is important for parents to understand too. You can always circle back. You can always, yeah. you know, and this is when your kids are a little older, maybe not with Logan, but, you know, too, but you can always say, Ooh, yesterday. Yeah. That thing I did with the te teeth, like Girl, not mommy's finest moment. Sorry about that. You know? I say this about relationships all the time. Like the number of people that I work with or that I coach or that I teach where I'm like, there is no timeline. Yeah. I say this all the time. There is no timeline. Like if yeah. you did something um, that hurt somebody's feelings, or by the way, if your feelings were hurt, mm. there is no timeline that you don't get to go to that person and say, hey, you know that thing that happened last week, a conversation we had about X, Y, and Z, it really upset me. Yeah. 
when you said X and it really bothered me when you said C, you know? Um, and I think so many of us feel like if we don't say it right Ooh, away, I wish I would have said, yeah, so say it. Say right. So um, and I mean, look, I've actually, I've lost friendships for that. Like you should have said it in the moment. And the fact that you didn't say it makes me feel unsafe Ooh. in this relationship. I'm like, Ooh, that's exactly what I got told because I waited one week to tell perfect. <laughs> Well, that's a very, very much the indication of self, right? Um, of that self, that person's self. But yeah, I got told because I waited a week that, and I was walking around thinking and holding on to this thing that they felt unsafe in the relationship with me. Um, and essentially, like the friendship ended over it. And I, and in the beginning, it really hurt. It really did make me think, like, oh my god, I should have said it, and it made me like turn it inward. And now, as, after like really sitting with it, it's just, again, it's such an indication of that person's ability and capacity to yeah. sit with, I hurt somebody's feelings and I should own my fucking shit. And that has nothing to do with who That's I am as a person. No. Nope. That doesn't make me a bad person because we will all fall short. Mm -hmm. We will be human. Yeah. We'll and it doesn't make me on the other side of that person. It doesn't make me like I, you know, the fact that I struggled with going to this person and saying it. I, I had to work through the fact that like, no, I was totally justified in saying it when I said it um, and their capacity or incapacity to, to hold it is not a reflection of, I did something wrong by waiting no. a week. Yeah, I mean, I think we say this about boundaries a lot. This is this person attempting to be close to you, yes. trying to increase the amount of intimacy. That is what I hear um, in that statement with that friend you're talking about is a bid for more intimacy, right? Like, I don't want this to be something between us. It sat with me and I'm attempting to bring them mm -hmm. back to me. I'm attempting to increase Boy, our I intimacy. Tried. Yeah. I tried, but also, and I can see how that, you know, that plays into, I mean, look, it's the stories that we tell ourselves. It's like, if that's how we were raised, if those bids for intimacy were treated in that same way, mm -hmm. and then the people who are close to us that we have, by the way, drawn into our lives for a reason, respond with the same, response right to our bids for intimacy we are going to internalize that and say this is why I shouldn't say anything this is why I shouldn't speak up this is why I shouldn't communicate a hurt or express a boundary because this is what happens right um and I've done enough work at least by that at that point I had done enough work to say no this actually isn't about me yeah. I know the kind of relationships I want in my life I'm going to continue those bids for intimacy and the people in my life are either going to accept them and come closer or not and the ones that don't are not meant to be in my life anymore because that's just not the kind of relationships I want in my life. And I don't know. I mean, this all goes back to control, I guess, in some ways. It's like, I can't control that other person. And by the way, me having something that hurt my feelings um, and not saying it because I don't want to rock the boat, because I don't want that person to leave or to blow up or to respond in the way I know they're going to respond. Yeah, that's control. Absolutely. That is control. Manipulation. And, manipulation. and people have another really hard time. That's another one that they have a hard time with is like, that is a form of manipulation. You mm -hmm. are controlling and manipulating that relationship. You are showing up in a specific curated way yes. in order to control the dynamic of that relationship. And by the way, you do not benefit from that kind of control. <laughs> yeah. I think, and I say often to clients, to me, one of the largest indication, indications of our healing is our ability to sit in the discomfort of people not liking us, mm -hmm. people not being pleased with us, yeah. or people carrying like the wrong idea about us. Yeah. And that does not diminish my sense Ooh. of self. Yeah. It's like it's hard. deep work. Yeah. And to me, like when I'm able to say like, yeah, their perception of me, the way that they are going to experience me 
is not the truth of how I feel about myself. And I've got to let them have that. I don't need to fix it. I don't need to do anything to change that. Like, that's just how they're going to have to feel. And it actually doesn't have anything to do. Yeah, it's like depersonalizing, right? It's our work of depersonalizing, <laughs> which I think is also so much of our just expansion of self is like our constant, um, our constant ability to depersonalize. <laughs> that is lost, but I mean, you know, it's just more of your time for me. I was gonna say it's <laughs> now you just have more time to be with me and, to, <laughs> and put bids for intimacy out into the out into the universe. <laughs> thanks for joining us for this episode of cheaper than therapy be sure to share it with a friend subscribe and give us a five-star review on apple spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts and if you want to connect with us more find us on instagram at cheaper than therapy the podcast ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.